Hi, I'm Mark Roderman. Coming up on Front Row, we'll discuss President Biden's State of the Union speech. North Carolina will receive its first payment from an opioid lawsuit and tough times for North Carolina's top crop. Next. Major funding for Front Row was provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by. Funding for the lightning round provided by Body Knoll Foundation, NC Realtors, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, and Helen Lockery. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Join the conversation. Mitch Kokow with the John Locke Foundation. Morgan Jackson, chief political strategist for Governor Roy Cooper, Jay Chaudhry, the Democratic whip in the Senate, and Nelson Dollar, senior advisor to North Carolina Speaker House. Mitch, let's begin with President Biden's State of the Union address. With approval ratings in the 30s, President Biden was looking at the State of the Union as a chance for a great reset. And despite the Russian invasion of Ukraine, some disturbing levels of inflation, problems at the southern border. President Biden said during the course of the speech that the State of the Union is great. Among the, the more interesting things that he talked about, uh, he had some messages like, uh, let's forget about this defund the police thing. We need to fund the police, keep people safe. We also need to have a situation where people could take off their masks. We also want a situation where we boost American manufacturing. All very interesting messages. Uh, and he went on for about an hour, but there were some downsides for him. One, he flagged a little bit during the course of his speech, reminding people that he is an older president and that uh, feeds into this whole idea that perhaps he's a little bit past his sell-by date. Also, some of his messages, I mentioned the, the thing about the police and about the mask, fly in the face of something, some of the things that you're hearing from the leftmost part of his party. And in fact, in addition to the traditional response that you hear from the opposite party, there was a response from his own party, from the leftist part of his party, a squad member, uh, Representative Rashida Tlaib, who came out and said that President Biden isn't being progressive enough, blasted him on the Not failure. Not doing enough on green energy. In fact, blasting the failure of the Green New Deal and talking about other areas in which he's not being progressive enough. That's gonna be a challenge for the president, trying to appeal to the people in the middle while also keeping the base satisfied. Morgan, you have the floor. I'm very shocked at Mitch's take on the state of the universe. <laughs> well, let me like, answer so, this. this Are the American people buying his message right now? Listen. Buying what he's selling? Uh, here's what I got to tell you. I think this was peak Joe Biden. I think, I think what you saw from Joe Biden was empathy, which is Joe Biden, which is optimism and a deep love of country. I think it was a good speech. I think he did a good job. State of the Union speeches are hard. They're laundry lists of ticking things off. I think one of the things that I noted Very about... Very few people tuned in, really. Well, they, it, it's, it's a declining audience in the last 40 years. People watch... Yeah, good, I mean, good. Well, Obama and, and Bush did better. But, but also people stream now, and so they can do right, other things. Right, But But listen, one of the things that really struck me was how much Biden talked about bipartisanship and the things that Republicans and Democrats had accomplished together, uh, infrastructure plan, uh, the American Rescue Plan, and others, you haven't heard bipartisan talk in a, in a state of union in many, many years. Another thing I would okay. say, I think he was really strong on Ukraine. He, taught, he showed an America that was united, which was what we needed to see. 
The last thing, I, the point I'll make, and this is the job of a president, he said to folks after two long years of COVID, we're going to be okay and we're going to be stronger. People need to hear that from your chief Jay, executive. Jay, he doubled down on green energy. Is now the time to do that? Well, I, I mean, or I think... Or should we I, be you know, uh, pumping more oil in this country? Well, I mean, the president, I mean, the president has talked about green energy, but I mean, my takeaway from the speech was less about green energy. I mean, I think if we're talking about responses, I think the Republican response was as marginalized as the one from Rashida Tlaib. But I mean, I, I think I think the president exhibited competence and strength. I mean, he got elected because he was um, he was elected to address the pandemic and the crisis. And I think what we saw from the State of the Union was a president that's elected that has the competence, certainly compared to Donald Trump in dealing with the pandemic. And secondly, I think it was strength. I mean, I think his response on Ukraine was strong, and I agree with Morgan. I think what well, the, what he closed that speech out with was on unity and patriotism, which is what the country needs, and was, which is why independents and Democrats elected Joe Nelson, Biden. Nelson, jump in here. Well, look, Biden's speech was like listening to Nero's fiddle. I mean, you know, <laughs> look, we've seen democracies threatened and falling across the globe. Uh, Biden offered no strategy for how we're going to actually reverse that trend or even how we're going to reverse the trend in Ukraine right now. There are a lot of sleepless nights in Taipei. So and on the domestic front. Uh, we heard a laundry list, like Mitch said, but no serious strategy for lowering inflation or addressing the energy crisis, which is actually a worldwide crisis right now. Quickly. He told businesses, okay, we want you to lower costs, not wages. That's great. But how are we going to address the labor shortage and higher prices for energy and, and commodities? There just weren't serious policy prescriptions on the table. Okay, I want to move on, change topics. Jay, uh, Attorney General Stein negotiated a very good settlement for North Carolina in the opioid front. Yeah, that's right, Mark. Uh, recently, Attorney General Josh Stein announced that North Carolina will see $750 million in payments in a few months. That comes from a national settlement that was made with four pharmaceutical companies over their role in the opioid crisis. Uh, according to Attorney General Stein, more than 20,000 North Carolinians have died from opioids. Uh, those companies will pay a grand total of $26 billion. That was part of the national settlement that took place, and all 50 states will participate with it. Um, I'll he say was really the leader on this. He was. I, I would say a couple of things about the settlement. I mean, one, every county in the state and 47 municipalities are going to participate um, in, in the money that uh, Attorney General Stein is going to going to distribute that's going to focus on recovery and treatment. Um, secondly, the, mon the way that money is going to be used will be done in a, transparent per in a transparent way. And to your point, Mark, I think it also seals Attorney General Stein's reputation as a national attorney general because he played a real lead in that national settlement negotiation. Well, you know, that's an interesting point because, Morgan, he's been tough on high tech, too. He has been. Uh, he has been a very consumer-focused AG. Uh, this was a huge win, not just for the AG, but more importantly for the people of North Carolina. And don't forget, there's actually another one he's working on right now that could get $100 million. This is against the Sackler family, which is the ones behind OxyContin. But listen, what this gets down to at the end of the day is we're finally be bringing people to bear for all these deaths and all these addictions. You, you've got pharmaceutical companies who have incentivized doctors and pharmacists to overprescribe these the churn. really really addictive uh, pain medicines. And you've created, as, as Jay mentioned, over 20,000 opioid deaths in North Carolina alone. Um, and it's just, it is a it is a it is a it's like a pandemic. I mean, when you look at the number of deaths, and so kudos to Attorney General Stein for leading the way on this. And I think again, when you add another hundred excuse me, another hundred million to it, it's going to be great for North Carolina. Mitch, 
<laughs> I, to me, there, there are two different things. One, the money flowing into North Carolina to help deal with the opioid situation. Good news. I like Morgan being shocked at my take on the State of the Union. I am shocked that he would like to give a lot of this credit to Attorney General Josh Stein. I'm sure he played a role, but these groups did not settle this multi-billion dollar lawsuit because one attorney general in North Carolina said so. This was a national thing. They had to take this on or, or risk facing even many more billions of dollars in lawsuits from across the country. So it is good this money is flowing in and it will deal with the opioid. And also the fact that a lot of this money goes to local communities and not to some sort of slush fund for the attorney general is also a good thing. But uh, let's 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 kind of uh, Tamp, tamp down, down, tamp down the credit. I guess credit. you don't count that he led the effort. That, 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 let that Nelson jump in here. <laughs> well, look, in uh, 2017, we passed the STOP Act, and that worked on addressing prescription opioid abuse uh, with physicians and pharmacists and, and a whole range of individuals. We funded uh, overdose uh, reversal drugs and long-term addic addiction treatment, and that's my concern at the local level. We need to make sure these funds are going in to address the actual causes of addiction mental health issues, family issues, job security issues. And we also have to be very concerned about the worst of the now synthetic uh, opioids like fentanyl and others that are coming from China and Mexico. They're sort of the real life uh, breaking bad labs that are out there. We've got to continue to work on the enforcement, particularly at the border. And we've got to, in the communities, make sure we're addressing the causes of addiction as well as um, the actual physical impact. That, okay, that legislation was led by We need to move on. I want to talk about North Carolina. Murphy. I want to talk about North Carolina's top crop <clears throat> having some problems. Listen, for 200 years, North Carolina, the, the cash crop has been tobacco. It's been king of agriculture. It's been king of North Carolina business. Uh, they've had a lot of setbacks over a, a long time. You know, I grew up in a community that there were tobacco farms in front of my house on all sides of my house. Uh, and those are gone. Mo the large majority of those are gone. Tobacco not only drove these local economies, it built the communities. Uh, there, uh, th there's a study that showed that a dollar, a tobacco dollar in a, in a local community turned over seven or ten times before it left. Multiplier effect. A multiplier effect before it left the community. It filled cash registers of stores, restaurants, and, and car dealers. It built schools, the tax dollars. It built the communities. But listen, it came with a real health impact. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is, as more data became available, as people understood the, what smoking did to folks and the health impacts of it, we've been declining in, in U.S. use of tobacco for many years now. Um, that has, that led to the demand, uh, a lower demand led to looking overseas for buyers. Uh, when, China. Uh, when Trump uh, started a trade war with China in 2018, the fact is, Asia stopped, China stopped buying North Carolina tobacco. By Great the point. By the time they worked that out in 20, we had the lowest production of tobacco in over 100 years. Now they're faced with a new challenge. They're, cha they're faced with not only rising prices for suppliers, they're having a hard time finding labor, but one of the biggest issues is the competition for land. Used to, you could make a living on tobacco by farming 10, 15, uh, 20 acres. Now it takes at least 100 acres, sometimes three or 400 acres, and the competition with the developers as, as, for, as new developers developments spring up all across North Carolina in a growing state it leaves these farmers with a lot of debt and a hard time forward. We saw right now uh, that there is such a decline in the number of farmers and many in this story were saying this is going to be their last year. Mitch, jump in here. 
Yeah, this is something that's been a long-term issue, the decline of tobacco. And uh, Morgan mentioned the, the trade war and the fact that people who were outside of the U.S. buying American tobacco have now looked for alternatives because of that. Uh, so that's a challenge. You had the, the COVID situation. You had the inflation now driving up supply costs. Prices are expected to go up for this latest crop, but not enough to cover for the excessive costs. We're now down to 1,300 farms in North Carolina when uh, years ago, as Morgan said, almost everyone had some sort of connection to a tobacco farm. Uh, I think this is going to be something that uh, is not going to go away anytime soon. These tobacco farmers are really going to have to come up with something. No, yeah, well... Zimbabwe is now a larger producer of tobacco than the United States, and that's happened over the course of the last five years. But uh, crops change. Agriculture changes over time. Originally, we were the leader in naval stores, you know, pitch and tar. That went away. Uh, now we are leaders in poultry and swine and soybeans and eggs and sweet potatoes and cotton and nursery plants, Christmas trees. Our agricultural mix is actually far more diversified now than it has ever been, and we are investing generally. General Assembly's been investing in the new plant sciences building at NC State. They call that 180,000 square feet of genius, uh, along with NC A&T in Greensboro and the North Carolina Research Campus in Kannapolis. We are actually, North Carolina is actually putting itself in the forefront of food, agriculture, and life science research in okay. the world, and that's the future. Jay, wrap this up in about 40 seconds, my friend. So, um, three things. I think what you know, the, the stories are heartbreaking to read about the decline of tobacco farmers. One is the tobacco settlement that was championed by uh, then Attorney General Mike Easley actually had a buyout of tobacco farmers, so I think that accelerated the decline. Secondly, Morgan talked about the trade wars. I think that's pummeled tobacco farmers. But I think lastly, which I think is probably the most interesting question, is about crop diversification and actually what the role of industrial hemp is for the future of the state, which we're seeing a migration to that. I also think it opens up a serious debate and discussion about whether we should legalize marijuana, which is a way to diversify crops for farmers, uh, because we've seen this happen now in the state of Virginia. As I've said, um, I think that the Virginia tobacco farmers have a leg up against us. Okay, I want to move on. That was a great wrap. Nelson, the EPA is being challenged uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court uh, on climate change. Yeah, that's right, Mark. The Supreme Court heard a case this week with far-reaching ramifications, West Virginia versus EPA. It started with rules to implement Obama's uh, clean power plan in 2015. The effort was abandoned and replaced uh, with a more focused set of rules under the Trump administration. With Biden in office, the push is again uh, on what's called regulating beyond the plant gate, beyond the power plant gate. Coal operators, red states, uh, and a number of others have objected to the EPA's potential rules on carbon emissions, basically saying they're going well beyond their statutory authority. The legal issue here is Are they making law, really? Well, yes. The legal issue here is the definition of a major question, and a major question is a policy choice for Congress not to be decided by... Um, a regulatory agency. So in this case, does the question really comes down, does the EPA have the power to eliminate fossil fuels from the U.S. economy without a very clear authorization from Congress? Is there a war on fossil fuels, Mitch, in this country by the Biden administration? Well, there's certainly a war on fossil fuels, and the Biden administration has done nothing to stop it or to, to, to kind of prevent it. I think one of the interesting things, and Nelson alluded to this, is part of this discussion is 
just how far can these large federal agencies go beyond what Congress has specifically told them they can do? And this is a case where... These are they, unelected officials. They are. They're, they're, they're bureaucrats. They're not accountable to right. anyone, really. And so that's one of the major issues. I think one thing that is going to be a wrinkle in this case is because there's not a particular rule right now that's being opposed, the Supreme Court could punt and basically say, look, you're, you're asking us to make some sort of declaratory judgment about something that hasn't happened yet. We're not willing to do that. We've seen the Supreme Court do that in the past. Jay. Well, look, I agree with Melkson that it's a far-reaching case, but I disagree with him, and I disagree with you because uh, the fact of the matter is uh, there is no rule before that's be, that the EPA has issued, and I think that's one of the arguments that the Biden administration is making is that there is a hypothetical rule that we're discussing on greenhouse emissions that doesn't exist. Secondly, uh, we've got precedent by the Supreme Court in, say, in stating that the Clean Air Act can authorizes the EPA to regulate greenhouse gases. And lastly, I think I find one of the most interesting points this case is actually large power companies are against the courts hearing this because they, in the end, want some kind of flexibility to be able to regulate uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So it's not it's not necessarily a one side. Uh, it's not one side that's advocating for this. Frankly, it's the coal coal companies and Republican-led attorneys general that have been advocating for this case that be brought before the but Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has indicated in argumentation that they they're getting beyond that. Um, uh, original initial question, and that they are going to have a substantive ruling on whether or not this is a major. Let Morgan enter. This is about a dying industry, and states like West Virginia are trying to protect it. You see utilities across the country that are moving away. Joe Manson would disagree. Uh, he would be one of the only ones to disagree with that. Uh, but this, listen, I, I want to say this. You, Jay mentioned utilities. A lot of the major utilities across the country you would think would be in lockstep with the coal companies. They're against the coal companies on this. Uh, look at, But I would say one thing about how it actually impacts us, impacts us in North Carolina. North Carolina has been a leader in moving away, moving towards cleaner burning fuel, cleaner burning energy, and away from these kind of coal-burning plants that make you sick, guys. I mean, that's ultimately its ability right. to regulate greenhouse gases. The, the legislature passed last year and the governor signed a sweeping broad piece of energy legislation that will remove coal fire plants from North Carolina, transition us away from those. So big, big kudos to North Carolina. But at the end of the day, it's about West Virginia hanging on to a dying industry. Okay, let's go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. State House Speaker Tim Moore has said that he wants the, to see a vote on a veto override of this Free the Smiles legislation that would end the mandatory masking in schools. If that ends up coming to pass, it will be the first vote to try to override a gubernatorial veto in a year. The last time it was tried was in March 2021. The Senate came up one vote you got short. The votes? We will see next yeah. week. It goes to the Senate first. Right. And, okay. the, and, and a year ago, the Senate came up one vote short of uh, overturning the veto on the bill that would have in-person instruction in schools. The state house hasn't voted on a veto override since July of 2020. Three bills were up there. They all three failed to, to clear the override. There hasn't been a successful override of a Cooper veto since December 2018. Morgan. He's free in my smile when he talks about <laughs> no, no veto overrides, brother. And let me tell you, there ain't going to be one next week either. So uh, here's what I'll say underreported. Rick Scott, the leader of the Republican campaign arm in the Senate, major gaffe in the last two weeks against the Republican Senatorial the, Committee. Uh, the Republican Senatorial Committee. Against Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader's wishes, Rick Scott rolled out a, a, a Republican agenda for 2022 to try to take back the majority. Consultant driven. A, a bad consultant driven. <laughs> in this, 
one of the one of the pillars of his plan is to raise taxes on 75 million Americans. This has Republican Senate candidates running for the fences saying, no, I, I'm not a part of this plan. And frankly, I think in a year that looks like it's it's trending towards Republicans, it's given Dem it, it, it's early, it's early, uh, but it's given Democrats a real weapon uh, to use against these Republican Senate candidates that didn't exist two weeks ago. Jay. Um, great story in Politico magazine about uh, a woman named Constant Baker Motley, who was the first African-American woman appointed to the federal bench and then touted back in the 60s as a Supreme Court candidate. She was part of the civil rights movement. Uh, she litigated Brown v. Board of Education. She represented Dr. King in Birmingham, and she won nine out of ten state U.S. Supreme Court cases, but that never seemed to be enough. The uh, so American Bar Association gave her a middle-tier rating. She was opposed by Senator James Eastland of Mississippi, who um, was really a white supremacist. A couple, couple decades ago. It was a couple of de decades ago, but it's worth reading that article in Politico because it's a reminder of the confirmation battle that's coming up with Katanji uh, Brown-Jackson, the first black woman nominated for the United States Supreme Court. When Jackson is confirmed, she will stand on the shoulders of, uh, of Motley, and it's a story worth reading. It's must read. Nelson? Yes, commodity and food prices are set to soar worldwide. In addition to oil and gas prices going up, commodity prices, wheat, corn, soybeans, metals are all globally on the rise. You have to keep in mind that Russia and Ukraine are the major or are major exporters of metals like aluminum, iron ore, other things that go into chips, for example. Russia and Belarus are combined the number one exporter of potash, that's fertilizer. Russia is the number one exporter of wheat and combined with Ukraine, they, they constitute 29% of the world's supply of wheat. So the war and the sanctions are gonna cause major commodity suppliers to be taken offline. The financial system is going to be stressed with all of the, the sanctions. Shipping costs are obviously going up. We are not only set for higher energy prices, but also higher food prices and potential major food shortages in areas like Africa, the Middle East, and elsewhere. Poor countries around the world could begin to experience famine conditions okay. within a year. Let's go to the late round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? Well, back to Morgan's trend. Who's up is Republican voters in primary elections. We saw in Texas there were 900,000 more Republican primary voters than Democratic Trendy. primary voters. That doesn't necessarily tell you how the result's going to be, but you certainly would rather be in the GOP position than the Democratic position. Who's down? U.S. Representative Madison Cawthorn. Initially, he wanted to move from his current district to a district a little bit east of it. With the new redistricting maps, he's going back to the 11th district, but with multiple primary challengers and some people who want to disqualify him from running for office at all. All emails go to Mitch Kokai. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's up this week is American unity. Uh, I want to say I have been so proud to see Americans of all shapes and stripes and everything standing for, for Ukraine, behind Ukraine and supporting Ukraine. I mean, for God's sakes, even Tucker Carlson, who's been pro-Putin for years, has now turned on Putin. I guess it has taken an invasion. Who's down this week? I'll go to, to candidates, uh, filing candidate filing ended on Friday. Uh, lots of primaries, a lot of folks who had had free rides on both up sides consultants. of the house. Yeah, up for consultants, down <laughs> for candidates. Uh, the new districts combined with a lot of uh, open seats and double bunking. We got a lot of primaries, as Mitch talked about, not only Congressional, but General Assembly this week on both sides of the aisle. Jay? 
Um, who's up is uh, unaffiliated voters. Uh, independent voters are poised to become the largest group of voters in the state. They outnumber Republicans and they're catching up with Democrats. They now comprise 2.5 million of our state's 7.2 million voters. And who's down? Uh, masks. So Governor Cooper on Monday, uh, starting Monday, will make masks optional for state employees and visitors. And he's also urging local governments and schools to make masks optional by March 7th. Nelson. Uh, Republican Hispanic women in Texas elections this last Tuesday, eight Hispanic Republicans won their party's nomination or will be in runoffs for congressional seats. Six are Hispanic women. Republicans also saw a high uh, Hispanic uh, turnout in key counties along the border. Uh, who's down international institutions, whether it's the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, NATO, the United Nations, they are all failing um, uh, their missions in the post-1945 uh, global okay. world order as it comes apart, not only as a result of the all pandemic, right. uh, but also the Ukraine war. This is being accelerated at an incredibly rapid pace. Mitch, headline next week, my friend. With candidate filing over and legal issues resolved, the political focus turns to May 17th. Morgan. I think the uh, invasion of Ukraine will continue to lead every newscast next week. Yeah, it's a sad situation. We need to pray for those people, really. Headline next week. Uh, General Assembly finally adjourns the longest legislative session ever. When are you coming back? Hopefully in May. Nelson. Yeah, I want to get a break too, right? Uh, headline next week, uh, Biden announces new nuclear deal with Iran. And if it does happen, you will see bipartisan opposition in Congress. Will that be a treaty or can he just make that deal? Well, he says he can make the deal, but Congress passed a law to, that says that any deal that's made with Iran has to pass through Congress. So there's going to be a, a question between the branches. Great job, gents. That's for it for us. Thanks for watching. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row was provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by. Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Body Knoll Foundation, NC Realtors, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, and Helen Lockery. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.